page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello and welcome back to Page Fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at the Andrew French, and this, of course, is the only literary podcast on the internet that I host. I am thrilled to have you back after uh, what ended up being a longer hiatus than I expected. Um, I have done a bunch of stuff in between, in case you're interested. Uh, I guess I finished my degree that I kept talking about on this show. I uh, finished that old thesis, and now we're moving on with life. Took a little vacation, uh, came back, and now we are ready to sit down and talk to some more authors and bring these interviews to you. Um, so thanks for joining me today. If this is your first episode, welcome. If it's not, welcome back. I am very excited to talk to today's guest, and so I'm just going to jump into their introduction, and we'll jump right into their book. So Sachiko Murakami is today's guest. She is the author of Render, which just came out, The Invisibility Exhibit, which was published in 2008, Rebuild, which was published in 2011, and Get Me Out of Here, which was published in 2015. As a literary worker, Sachiko has edited poetry for various presses, worked for trade organizations, hosted reading series, organized conferences, sat on juries, and judged prizes. She lives in Toronto. Here I am chatting with Sachiko Murakami. I am here today with Sachiko Murakami. Uh, Sachiko, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. I loved your latest book. It's called Render. It's out now with Arsenal Pulp Press. And uh, I really am excited to plug this book today. It is the first episode I've done in about a month and a half. Um, So it's my kind of return to podcasting after a little bit. And I'm so glad that I get to do it with you. Um, Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, I guess for people who are a little uh, maybe unaccustomed to your work or or haven't read it before, uh, would you be able to start us off with a reading? Sure. I'm I'm just going to read the first poem in the book, which is kind of, um, I guess it kind of has, um, especially the kind of last lines, has a a little bit more sinister element after uh, COVID. Um, but it, uh, which you will notice if you pay attention. Um, but it's, it's kind of the, um, I was trying to think why would anybody want to read a book of poems about me <laughs> and my dreams and my experiences. And it's kind of me, um, I guess justifying. So kind of an ars poetica for the book. Okay. Cool. Uh, so this is called Encounter. And it's the first time I've actually read from the bound copy of the book. So this is pretty exciting. Oh, no way. That is exciting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, encounter. Would you take a look at this sweat held together by dream, the twined phrase of memory and history, twist of language and the form a breath endures when you wake up shaken, the fist of trauma inches from the hand of the word that would submerge the big idea in bathwater. When the adult's argument drifts apart, a wah-wah trombone, ear canal awash with whoosh of escape. Or come back to the hum of today where you could almost feel what he feels on the neighbor's porch, 
scrolling through his phone, checking for updates on someone else's disaster? Would you wait on the shore a minute, passing just like my minute, your sea, my sea? There are many names for the ocean, where so many swim, frantic to reach the classroom, to take the test, to teach the class, find the almost forgotten child. Your anxiety, my anxiety, unclimbable towers fall in a dream and all structure burns as memory burn into sinew. Your sinew, my throat, drift apart. Particular flotsam fills our drowned lungs, but none of it happened the way I remembered the moment I woke up, exhaling the dream into your air. Awesome. Thank you so much for starting us off with that. What a great way to start too, because this was one of my favorite poems in the book, um, even though it comes right at the start. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of how this poem is placed, because that is something that always interests me, is how people divide their books up and how they kind of position poems. And this is a poem that is positioned right at the start and is on its own in its section. Um, and the rest of the sections contain multiple poems. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak about that choice a little bit. Yeah, as I mentioned, it's kind of, um, I was asking, kind of asking myself, I'm having anxiety about writing a book of poems, because my poems, my, my books are generally have been projects about subjects, issues, real estate, or Vancouver's downtown east side, or uh, air, airports, kind of. And um this, this poem, this book is mostly about me. And I guess I had anxiety about, well, why would anybody want to read a book of poems about my experiences or my dreams in particular? Um, and I guess it was um, me kind of just thinking about uh, empathy and uh, the distance between people um, and what what keeps us apart and what can bring us together and um and whether or not that can happen in a poem so it's kind of what i was thinking about with that and so yeah that's why it kind of that's why it comes at the beginning <laughs> because yeah it, uh, the other ones are kind of more um i guess in in the middle of the experience and this one is kind of a little bit outside of the experience and thinking about the the whole project as a whole yeah, very cool. Um, I think you touched on a couple things that do run through the book that are really important. So obviously dreams are an important idea here. Uh, and kind of the line between writing about oneself and having a speaker in a poem as well. Uh, you mm -hmm. mentioned that this was really different from a lot of the other projects you've worked on and created. So um, how was it writing a book about yourself and your own experiences? I mean, I, I am not absent from my previous books, but I guess I came up at a time like in writing when the confessional was, I guess, kind of like not uh, and it, like it was kind of looked down upon and you, you're just really discouraged from writing about yourself, <laughs> um, hmm. which I don't think is really the case anymore. I, I feel like um, people are much more accepting of, and readers and writers are much more accepting of like, oh, I, I'm a person and I have experiences and those are 
valid things to write about. Um, so I guess that like, um, I am definitely in my other books, but my books are about something else and I kind of inserted or found my way into them. So for example, my first book is about um, the missing and women of Vancouver's downtown east side. And my way into that story was my relationship with my mother who lived in the downtown east side at the time. And then my second book was about Vancouver real estate. And then um, it was also, also about the death of my father who um, had a complicated relationship with real estate. So, uh, and he died while I was writing the book. So mm. um, there, I'm in my other books, but this book is the first one where I, I actually used myself as the material primarily. And that is the focus of the book. So my, my, my um, publisher is, is calling it a poetic memoir, even though it doesn't really have like a, a quite a, a solid beginning, middle and an end narrative. I mean, it does, but it, it doesn't, it maybe doesn't have a very satisfactory resolution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this is really cool. And I, I like this uh, idea too, that I think um, I talk to a lot of writers who write confessional poetry. I think mm -hmm. if you go through the list of people I've talked to, a lot of them are writing confessionally. Um, mm -hmm. But also some of those that I've been talking to more recently try to do other things. And I think it's really neat to hear somebody or hear from somebody who's had the experience of doing both. Um, and, and in these projects that you're talking about, your earlier projects, it can often be difficult to kind of remove oneself from what you're talking about anyway. Um, so I find that having a bit of yourself in those, in those books is always interesting as a reader. Um, mm -hmm. I hope that thought makes sense. Um, yeah, and I think it's kind of disingenuous to pretend like you don't exist <laughs> in some <laughs> ways. I mean, just like, I know you're there, like stop hiding. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and this book too, I mean, there's there's obviously, uh, like you are more foregrounded, I think, than your earlier works. And so I really enjoyed this one as a writer of confessional poetry. Um, but I think there's a lot here that, that even like when people hear confessional poetry, I think they often think of a narrative that is just chopped up into lines. Um, but oftentimes your poems escape that structure and challenge that structure. And that's one of the things I really liked about them. Um, was the way in which this conventional setup of beginning, middle, and end is kind of twisted on its head. Um, yeah, really I, yeah, I, I don't think I'm, I guess I'm a formal, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a formalist, but I think that for me, writing a poem is as much about form as it is about content. So I don't think I, I would be entirely satisfied with prose. Um, with line breaks I mean yeah I just it's not for me as a writer I don't find that a satisfying thing like a satisfying thing to do like it I need hmm. I always need to have at least two things happening in a poem like like in terms of what is being expressed and then how it's being expressed um, and that's just how my brain works I just need a lot of things happening at the same time um, especially in terms of the the mouthfeel and the sound of words, because that is just what I'm preoccupied with, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, and I actually wanted to bring that up because I was going to mention, and it slipped my mind as I was thinking of other things to say, but I was going to mention after you finished your reading that I really liked hearing your poem read aloud and mm -hmm. the way that you paced it, because I find oftentimes these can go, you know, multiple ways, 
Um, I always enjoy hearing how authors read their work, um, but it's fascinating to me where people place emphasis and how they pace themselves and so on. Um, so it's interesting to hear that uh, you are concerned with kind of mouthfeel and the sound of your work as well when you're writing it. Um, how does that, like, are you keeping that in mind as you're writing poetry for the page, like frequently, or is it something that kind of pops up here and there? I, it's, I, know it's, it's always like one of the first things in my mind is, um, looking at the relationship between sounds, um, between lines and within lines and looking at the line as a unit and looking at, uh, rhythm and repetition in particular and um, seeing how that makes the uh, entire poem cohere um, is one of my like the things that I'm most concerned with because it's otherwise it's just I don't know it's not it's like dough that hasn't been kneaded enough so I don't know hmm. do you ever make bread uh not really but I like the analogy so let's keep going with it <laughs> right so like you know when you start um, when you start kneading bread, uh, at first it's just kind of like this lifeless mass and mm -hmm. it's, um, it's just like this mass of dough and yeast and water and salt. And it just kind of, it's just like this lump. And then, but the more you work it, the more, uh, it brings the, all the different components inside to life, like yeast and, um, gluten and it starts springing back and it becomes a living thing like literally a living thing underneath your hands mm -hmm. from working it and that's how i guess how i think of uh working a poem is that it needs to spring back under my fingers like it needs to I have, love that it needs to have a life that that kind of came from somewhere else um that you know what i mean like and that's usually through um through the the sound Interesting. I like the idea and, and the, the phrase of kind of like working a poem to life as a writer sounds very cool to me. Um, yeah. So I really like that idea. Um, one of the things I do on this podcast is I get writers to ask each other questions. And so I have a question for you from my last guest. Uh, okay. They didn't know I'd be interviewing you because it was a month and a half ago. Okay. Uh, but uh, they are wondering for my next guest, uh, what poem if there is one, do you wish you had written? Um, and is it a poem that you could have conceivably written yourself? Man, I feel like, I feel that, um, I feel that a way about a lot of poems. <laughs> oh yeah? Um, yeah, I mean, like, I guess I, when I read poems that are like really like accomplished in terms of, like that, that, you know, that awaken that, you know, the cut, the cut that top of your head off feeling. <laughs> no, it's, mm -hmm. not cut that, it's not cut the top <laughs> of your head off as it is like, what does Emily Dickinson say? It's like, knock the top of your head off. The one oh, that's it's something feeling, like that, yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> chop your head off feeling um, <laughs> that a poem gives you where you're like, oh my God, like I, that, that is so amazing. And I feel different because of that poem. I wish I could do that. And I think the last two books that have really made me feel like that are um, Billy Ray Belcourt's Indian Coping Mechanisms and yes. Lauren Turner's The Only Card in a Deck of Knives, where I'm just- Oh, like, I had Lauren Turner on the show a little oh, bit ago. Too. Oh, that's Yeah, great. it was lovely. And her book is awesome. 
Yeah, so just the kind of like when you can feel that every word in a poem, even like, even like not even poems, like, so I'm just thinking of Lauren's book in particular, because I just uh, had been reading it last week. And it, um, every word feels like just perfectly in place, like, oh, there's no other word that could have gone there. Um, and then the Billy Ray Belcourt's book really made me feel like it was like this like uh, an unraveling and an explosion and just like kind of like an undoing of I don't know like just this just that, that made me feel excited um yeah and I, yeah so I get that whenever I like I don't like wish like oh I wish that, uh, that was my poem but I like I some I'm just as a as a cross person or as a person or a thinker I, I kind of envy people that can hold it together for that long and to make something yeah. like really like beautiful. And yeah. I totally so those, agree. Yeah. 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 I, I think I, the I, best I, poems I, do that, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's really the point. I don't think I can think of a specific poem in particular though. I mean, yeah. we'd just be here for a long time. <laughs> I think those are some great examples too. And it's funny that you bring up those two people because they're people whose work I really admire as well. Um, and, and I totally agree. And I think that's one of those things that I love as a reader is the feeling that you kind of mentioned or the thought that you mentioned there of no other word could go here. How did you pick yeah. that exact word? That is mm -hmm. such a cool moment to have when you're reading a poem. And if, if a poem makes you step back, and, and experience that, I, I think that's like one of the coolest feelings you can have as a reader. And in fact, is probably why I read poetry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's so much fun to me. So yeah. yeah, it feels like, like, like being woken up in like, in the best possible way, like over and over again with every line, you know, that's what I, that's what I like about poetry. It's just, yeah. like it's, you can't just kind of just like run your eyes over it and kind of start falling asleep. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. And especially those two poets, too. Their work mm -hmm. is so inviting uh, into interpretation uh, and, and, and is very involving of the reader. So I, I find it to be the case. Um, so yeah, but we are talking about your work. So I'm going to jump back and try to segue into that. I am wondering if you could kind of run us through some of the themes that are present in the text, because um, there were some that I really related to and really enjoyed reading somebody's experiences of um, and I was just hoping to kind of kick open a conversation about that. So, so for the listener who might not be familiar with the work, um, what are some of the themes that come up in Render? Um, so the um, I guess centrally it would be addiction and mm -hmm. trauma and recovery and um, the way those are rendered is through um memory and dreams right. and the kind of difficulty of um um accessing or resolving um kind of trauma experiences traumatic experiences or um kind of addiction when there are gaps and holes um in your in your memory, which trauma and addiction both produce, um, these big holes in in your experience. So yeah. kind of trying to use dreams as a as a sideways kind of way through those experiences as well. 
Yeah, and there are a few, actually quite a few poems in the collection where we start with a dream and the poem ends grounded in your own experience. Yeah. Um, and it's such a fun, trans- well, maybe fun's not the word, but I find it very, uh, like very engaging as a reader and and a really, uh, I'm, I'm short on words here, but I really enjoy that transition and, and that yeah, setup yeah. of starting from, from the dream and, and grounding it in reality towards the end of the poem. First of all, I'm, I'm glad that you can recognize those moments that's great because sometimes <laughs> I like I, I think I, I had a few conversations with my editor where she got a little bit confused and it was like well we're not in the dream anymore can't you tell <laughs> like right <laughs> we're not in the dream we left the dream um and I think part of the reason for that is that like I I I want to be generous with readers and I know that it can be um maybe too much to just be in somebody's dream because those are completely like the part of the reason why I use the dreams as material is because they're they are dreams are so untranslatable and you know when you try to describe your dream to somebody you never ever do it justice like oh I was I was you know I saw my cousin but it was actually my high school principal and you know (laughs) we were on top of a mountain that was actually underwater and stuff and you you just can't explain your dreams to somebody so I I always tried to have something else in the poem happening that wasn't just my dream yeah and what a great um kind of comparison of dreams and trauma in that they both are semi inexplicable like you cannot find the words to capture either and i think dreams are kind of a great sort of analogous comparison to make there uh with with trauma and it's something that you do really well throughout the book too and and it's something that i really enjoyed picking up on once i picked up on it was kind of this idea of um what words can't hold or what words can't explain and, and this is something, this idea that applies both to dreams and trauma. And so this comparison is very fitting, I think. Not a question, but a comment. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that reading. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, we are about halfway through now. We're probably getting close to halfway. So I'm going to ask you to read the random poem of the episode that you've, okay. that you've found. Okay, so I don't know this poem, but I know the writer, Joy Kagawa, who oh, cool. I don't, you know, I don't know if people know who she is now. Um, I know a have... little bit about her and of the writing residency in her name in Vancouver. That's right, um, at the Joy Kagawa house. Joy Kagawa wrote um, probably the most important literary work about Japanese internment, Japanese-Canadian mm-hmm. internment, uh, called Obasan um in the 70s or the 80s and uh she is a wonderful person i had the opportunity to work with her um on a on a project um oh, very a cool. fundraiser a fundraiser for the tsunami um in you know about oh god 10 years ago now yeah and um we did a we did a fundraiser for that and she cool. is just a wonderful person and and so on. but I don't know this one, but I'm going to read it anyway. It's called Where There's, a, Where There's a Wall. Where there's a wall, there's a way through a gate or door. There is even a ladder, perhaps, and a sentinel who sometimes sleeps. There are secret passwords you can overhear. There are methods of torture for extracting clues to maps of underground passages. 
There are zeppelins, helicopters, rockets, bombs, battering rams, armies with trumpets whose all at once blast shatters the foundations. Where there's a wall, there are words to whisper by loose bricks, wailing prayers to utter, birds to carry messages taped to their feet. There are letters to be written, poems even. Faint as in a dream is the voice that calls from the belly of the wall. Very cool. Yeah. And we have some dream imagery too. Yeah, it's pretty. Does anything about the poem jump out at you? Um, I like this. It's almost, it has like a sonnety feeling, but it's not, a, it's much longer than a sonnet, but it has, I love the, the, the form of the sonnet in that it's, um, it's like the golden, what's that thing called? The golden mean where it's like, you know, the three quarters, the three quarters, oh. one quarter, or three, two thirds, one third kind of structure. Yeah. Yeah. The ratio. Uh, whatever yeah. Golden ratio. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Um, and so this poem is set up as three stanzas. So the first stanza are the, is like all the horrible things about, um, you know, using this war imagery. And then uh, the next stanza, which is about half that size, is about um, the, the, the ways out and the, and the messages and the poems that get you through this kind of horrible experience. And then the last one is you can hear uh, that it's a couplet, even though it's four lines. So it has a sonnety feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the sonnet structure is just such a wonderful place to start from um, for when you're trying to find a like a, a shape for a poem. So you just have to go in one direction for a but for like a certain amount of time. Then you have to change directions for about you know just over half that time and then you have to wrap it all up really fast um and that's what i think of a sonnet structure it doesn't have to be you know in in the kind of shakespearean or or whatever petrarchan right. structure just kind of like go this way for a little bit then then switch that's the volta right the big turn mm-hmm. um and then kind of undo what you've done and then just wrap it up <laughs> at the end yeah um so i really love that about this poem what a great reading that that pays attention to form in the poem because uh on on my side of things and on the reader or the listener's side of things um we don't see this poem in front of us right now so it's cool to have you kind of break it down this way and think through it structurally for us um what a what a fascinating exercise Mm -hmm. and i agree sonnets are such a cool place to start with a poem admittedly i'm not uh one of the people who's overly concerned with form um, I, I think about it quite often, but I find if you read most of my, anything that I've written, you would be like, oh, this guy doesn't know anything about form, um, which is probably true. Um, so I'm always kind of impressed. And, and we were talking earlier about how we kind of admire certain things that certain writers do. One of the things I admired so much about your poetry and that of actually some of the most recent guests I've had too, is, is that, um, you are playing with form and you are positioning words in ways that I would never think to do it. Um, and that's something that's so fascinating to me. So it's cool that, that what you jump to, um, with this poem, I mean, my first jump was to the dream imagery and it sounds like yours was to, well, look at all the ways that this is structured, all the ways that these words work together. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's just fascinating that these two styles are coming together. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, um, I don't think it's possible to write poetry without 
thinking about form, but not necessarily the way that, you know, you're, you're taught about form, but like when you're, right. when you're writing, it's like, maybe it's different for other people, but for me, it's like, um, as I'm, as my little cursor is moving across the page, cause I do not write longhand. Um, <laughs> it's like a dance between me and like what's coming out and that dance of like, no, that's not right. And then, oh, this, this line needs to move down here. Um, or, oh, this line would sound better if it came like, you know, at the end of the poem, that is all form work, right? Just because it's not like you're not making it into a sonnet, that doesn't mean that it's not form work. It's still form work. Anytime you're that thinking makes about, sense. anytime you're thinking about the relationships beyond just what am I trying to say? I think that's form work. Well, now I feel validated and I, <laughs> and I don't that's know if I'm that's what for. you're going for. Oh, great. Um, Because, yeah, I I think you're right. And I think um, most of my writing is very free verse. And I I think there's a lot of young writers, especially who are who are writing free verse and um, are concerned, especially with the confessional, which we talked about earlier, too. Um, And so I, I think oftentimes it's easy to forget some of the more complicated things that are going on when you're writing a poem. Um, I think I'm guilty of that for sure. I always am just kind of concerned with what story I'm telling, how I'm telling it. And then in the editing stages, we'll go through and and kind of chop it up and figure out this is where this is going to go because it's more effective here. Or if I shape this like this, it looks like this and so on. Um, So it's easy to forget all that goes into writing a poem, especially when you are somebody like me who is mostly a reader. I write a little bit, but I'm mostly reading books. And when you get a finished product, um, it's so hard to tell oftentimes what has gone into creating a poem um oftentimes when you pick up a book you can tell a whole ton has gone into writing the book um and there's there's often a lot of steps that are going on behind the scenes that you can tell are probably there but it's also difficult to say oh this writer you know dealt with this in the process of writing this poem and and so on um of course there is a huge debate about whether or not that's even relevant to reading but i always find it's interesting to kind of pick writers brains and figure out what their editing process is like, what they're concerned with as they're writing and so on. Yeah. And I don't know. There's like a one there. I've seen like um, Sylvia Plath's work and I think like Emily Dickinson's work, you can see their kind of like first drafts and how they edited them. Um, There's like a lot of these old poets like online with these like kind of scanned documents of, like, you know, like the typewritten poem and then their hand, their hand edits, which I think is, and then you can see kind of how the poem evolves, I think. Right. Uh, and um, unfortunately, that's not something that like you could really have with my work because I tend to just erase all, all of the previous iterations of the poem, which I guess, mm-hmm. I think I used to save, like I used to copy and paste a poem and then, um, and then just like put it on the next page and then, uh, so I'd have like, I had that poem like preserved just in case I screwed it up in the edit. Um, and I just don't do that anymore because I think I trust myself more as, as a self editor. Like I, I trust myself to not like completely break my poems and then also to be less precious that if I break my poems, then that's okay. <laughs> like, it's not like yeah. the poem that I broke was like, I wouldn't be editing if it was perfect to begin with. So I just try to let that go. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's always the undo button as well. So there's always the backup plans. Yeah. 
Um, we are slowly approaching the end of our episode. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you have a question I can ask my next episode's guest. Sure. Um, I'm sorry, I haven't listened to all the episodes, so I don't know if this is a question That's okay. somebody has already asked. But um, uh, I'm just wondering if, I'm wondering how many books uh, you read during lockdown or since the pandemic started. Oh, because yeah, I'm this curi- is a great I'm question. Really, generally, genuinely curious because my reading—I don't know if it's because I have a baby and um, I don't sleep—but um, my reading <laughs> has just like fallen off a cliff since the pandemic right. started. Just like completely, I think I've read like maybe two novels and like like four books of poetry um, since March. Oh, that's like that's still quite a bit. I think not like that's really. not nothing. I, from like a person who's like generally a reader, it's like it's not that much at all. Right. And one of the novels I think I had already read before, so okay. I don't really, really can like it's like kind of like just like comfort reading, you know. So yeah, um, I mean, I'm rereading curious. counts too. Yeah, I guess so. But like, I'm just curious because <laughs> like I don't know. I I read somewhere that somebody was like, "Why are we all like just reading the same books and I'm watching the same TV shows right now?" And it's like there's something really comforting in knowing the ending right now right. Um, because we don't know what the ending of this is going to be. So like, Oh, if I, if I read something that I've already read before, I know how it's going to end and nothing scary could possibly happen. Uh, anyway, I so like this. I'm just yeah. curious about like how many, how many books this person has read. Yeah. I normally do that mean thing where I turn the question around and ask you how many books you've read at at this point, but you've obviously (laughs) answered that. Um, I will say I'm almost on the flip side in that I've had time to read more, but I, I feel like that coincides with other things going on in my life. Like I just finished a degree and I have just started like working now. So I find I have a little bit more time like after work and on weekends to pick up a book. Congratulations. What was your degree? Um, I finished my master's um, in in, in in English. English. Yeah. Where 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 uh, did you study? I studied at UBC. Ah, okay. I, I did yeah. my undergrad there. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, that's a wonderful feeling of like, oh, I can read a book that's not on a reading list. <laughs> yes, that that freedom <laughs> yeah. has been lovely. Yeah, um, and and, and I, especially I after writing a, a thesis. On this. Yeah, I don't exactly. Have to write a paper on this. Um, but yeah, I, I actually find myself rereading a bunch lately as well. And I've been wondering why, and perhaps it is this comforting feeling. Um, and, and this idea of, I know how this goes. I know what this poem will feel like. I know what this book will feel like. Um, and I, and I can return to that feeling. And it's also nostalgic too, right? If you read it during a good time in your life, um, Mm -hmm. then reading a book from that time evokes that time and evokes those memories. So, Mm -hmm. um, that can be comforting too. Do you have a book that you like, or that you just like read all the time, like many times over and over again? Oh, that's a really me? good question. Um, no, I do. I have a couple that are really beat up. Um, so Gord Downey wrote one poetry collection and I the read Coke that Machine frequently. Glow? Yeah, I love that book. <laughs> okay. Um, I live for that. It's, it's good stuff. Um, what else is there? Uh, I revisit a lot of Cecily Nicholson stuff. That was really formative for me because um, I happened to have a professor that she had like way back in the day. Um, and so reading some of her work, I, I got to, I got the chance to meet her like semi early in her writing, I guess. And, uh, and so revisiting her stuff is always nice for me. Um, and of course I just wrote a, a master's thesis on Al Purdy. So I write, okay 
a bunch about him and think about him a lot. So I read his poetry a lot. Um, but yeah, those are my, those are my most beat up books. It's a weird collection of names, but what, what about you? Do you have any that you're returning to a lot? Oh, I, yeah. Well, I mean, I, in terms for comfort, I, my comfort reading isn't poetry because I think poetry is too stimulating for mm. comfort reading. Um, except for the only, um, volume that I would really say I read for comfort is Louise Gluck's Trillium. Um, oh, yeah, which is just this really, I find it really comforting. I don't know, maybe it's because I associate it with certain things in my life, but, um, but, oh, sorry, The Wild Iris, The Wild the Iris, wild iris. Is, is the okay. title of the book. The Trillium is my favorite poem in the book, but um, the books that I read, like I read uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ursie books like every year. Um, right. And as the days start getting shorter, I like, I like to reread them. Um, and I just find it very comforting to read them, even though they're all about death. They're like literally all about death. Um, <laughs> it's like the least like cozy children's books ever. But yeah, so like children's <laughs> fantasy books, I like to read <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. No, those are nice to return to as well. And I actually haven't read The Wild Iris. So and I am going to a bookstore later today. So I might pick it up if they yeah. have a copy. Um, very cool. Um, so as I mentioned, we are reaching the end of our episode. So I'm wondering before we sign off, if I can get you to read one last poem for us. So I read the first poem in the book. I'll read the last poem in the book. Awesome. Um, it's pretty short. It's called hashtag still here. Um, and I, so the book is, as we've talked about, is a lot about, um, you know, darkness and trauma and dreams and addiction and kind of recovery that isn't a very inspirational story um and so I was like oh I really need to like make an like write an inspirational poem for this book <laughs> <laughs> and like and this is what I this is what I managed to come up with which is not inspiration at all but it is <laughs> I mean, it's the best I can do. I mean, the poem, the, 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 I mean, I guess one of the arguments, if the book has an argument is that like, um, if you've, uh, a lot of the book is about my addiction and my addiction was really dark and my recovery hasn't been, you know, the, the brightest, happiest, you know, like the, there's this idea that like when in, especially in recovery narratives that like your life is terrible and then you stop drinking and using, and then your life is amazing. And for yeah. me, like, that is true. Like my life, like I have a, like a family and a baby now, and those are not things that I could ever have when I was drinking and using. Um, but the, the darkness that preceded my addiction is still in me after my addiction. So, um, a lot of the book is like kind of grappling with like how to how do I come to terms with that so yeah and um, can I just I, I just wanted to mention too because we didn't get too into this but uh -huh. one of the things that I had written down that I really wanted to mention to you was that uh, one of the things I liked was the normalization in this book of a very winding road to recovery it's not a straight path And, uh, and oftentimes, like you said, the darkness that comes before an addiction does not go away when the addiction is being dealt with. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so these, these problems still come up. And as somebody who has kind of experienced a lot of these things before, I find it really soothing and comforting to read through these sorts of things. So I wanted to just say thank you for writing about those experiences because oh. that's very cool to read as a reader um, who, who has been in some of these places. Well, that is why I wrote this book was to oh, be I'm so like, glad. it's okay if you're not okay, you know? Yeah. Like it's, it's okay. Like you, you can, like, I'm still here. So that's the final section of the book is that is called still here. And this poem is called hashtag still here, which is kind of like, I'm like, it's like, I was thinking of like, you know, like hashtag blessed hashtag, right. you know, like living my best <laughs> life. Um, and I mean, being here after like having gone through the things that I've gone through, I think is like a huge thing. Like I'm still here. That's still a thing. Yeah. Okay. So it's called hashtag still here. I am sad and I am walking. I am breathing and I am engulfed in flame. I am peripheral to your life and I am the center of pain's harsh enterprise. I can't get out of bed and I am resting. I am a flash in the river and I am the spoiled salmon dinner. I am self-obsessed and I am a knot of winter afternoon light. Hashtag am writing. Hashtag am not writing. I am Tara's own knot, and I am barely a person. I am my own perfect disaster, and I am in on the joke. I am completely out of fashion, and I am still here. I love it. Thank you so much. Um, Guys, the book is called Render. It's out now with Arsenal Pulp Press, and it is, if you can't tell from this episode, 100% worth picking up. So thank you so much for chatting with me today, Sachiko. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. That was me chatting with Sachiko Mirakami about her latest book, Render, which is out now with Arsenal Pulp Press. Uh, it's worth picking up at your local independent bookstore uh, and is really just a great read. If you've liked anything that I've plugged on this podcast before, chances are you will like Render. It's a really compelling uh, and interesting book and is worth taking some time out of your day to read. Um, if you like what I'm doing the show here, why don't we make this official? It's super easy to subscribe to the show. You can get it essentially anywhere you're listening to podcasts. Um, so wherever you're listening to this right now, you can probably subscribe to it. Um, with the exception of if you go to anchor.fm where you can listen to all of the cataloged episodes, you should just be able to go to anchor.fm slash page fright and check out all of the episodes that I've done. This is the 40th of them now. Hooray. Uh, and you can also go to theandrewfrench.com for any updates on what I'm up to, as well as where this podcast is heading. On that topic, um, I do have some more interviews lined up in the next couple of weeks, so there will be episodes coming, just not quite ready to commit to a regular schedule right now, so we might be looking at that later, but currently episodes will just kind of be coming when they come, but you can check twitter.com slash pagewritepod to get the latest updates on when episodes are going to be coming out. So, without... Uh, Much else to say. I will sign off here. I hope everybody is doing well and staying safe during the pandemic, and I hope to be chatting with a guest for you soon. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench, and this right here, this has been Page Fright.